you know, as we think about our identity, you know, it's, I think, human nature to focus on what's wrong, the flaws that we have. And, and he deals with Peter, a, a very gifted guy who had made a huge mistake and thought that he had lost his relationship with the Lord and certainly his confidence in life. And in John chapter 21, we see the great pains that Jesus took to restore Peter to his sense of value in the kingdom of God, not diminished by his mistake. In fact, our mistakes give us entree to a different perspective, other strengths and greater learnings that come out of the trauma of doing things badly sometimes. Let me pray for you and we'll begin. Gracious Lord, everybody here could point out what's wrong, what's bad. And, and the devil reinforces constantly, who are you and who do you think you are and what gives you the right. And you know the mistakes that you've made. You know the flaws that you have. You know the tendencies. You know even right now what sin grips you and, and, and how you react to others. And uh, Satan's got a strong voice and he has my ear often. Lord, right now, by your Holy Spirit, breathe into me a different wind. Help me to see myself as you see me, as righteous, as perfected, and perfectly positioned to make a difference in things that matter. Grant it, Lord, I pray for Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I've been a pastor uh, for 37 years, and, and uh, a lot of those years have, have been right here. And you know my flaws. You've seen them. You've experienced the pain of them often. And, uh, and yet the Lord has called me to this ministry. And, and it's been a great ministry for me, and, and I love what I do, and, and I look forward to doing it for a long time still. In the course of those years, I've conducted hundreds of funerals, hundreds of memorial services. Now, when we go to the seminary to learn to be pastors, we take a class in pastoral practice. And in that class, they deal with things like funerals and weddings and all the particulars and all the special things that pastors get involved with in people's lives. And I remember in the course of studying that textbook and also the lectures that I received from my professor, that there were certain do's and don'ts to conducting a Christian funeral. You know, just a lot of things that I won't trouble you with now. But one of the things they said was, no eulogies, you know, leave that to the Protestants. You know, you know, they praise people. We're here to praise Jesus and talk only about Jesus. In fact, it's better if you don't even mention the person who died or their family. You know, and, and the only music that you should share would be sacred music. After all, this is a divine service. It's for God. It's dedicated to the Lord. Speak only about Jesus. Sing only about Jesus. And so being the obedient person that I am. I did that for a couple of months. And, and, uh, and then I just said, this is crazy. This is stupid. You know, God has uniquely blessed these people with special gifts, children, family, life experiences. Why should we not give God praise for that as well? Now, to be sure, there's something in what my professor said. There's something to be said about the book that said Christ should be preeminent. You know, we're here not to praise a person. I'm not going to preach them into heaven based on how good they were or, or create questions about their eternity based on how bad they were or what they didn't do. You know, we are all made perfectly righteous in Jesus Christ. Amen? You know, so as we remember things, we're going to remember first and foremost that Jesus was the Lord and Savior of this person. And because of him, their assurance is guaranteed. Amen? Let's praise and sing God's glory for that. 
But there's so many other ways in which the Lord blessed them. And there's scripture to back it up. It said, if he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, will he not along with him freely give us all things? Let's talk about some of those all things. And then Psalm 103 says, uh, let's not forget even one of his benefits. Why would I ignore some of the benefits? You know, I I remember uh, particularly uh, a few years back, I was conducting a service and, and I was struggling with music that people would like to have sung at, at services. And in this case, uh, uh, a husband, uh, you know, a dear and devoted husband had died and, and his widow was aged and she was there and the family was there. And uh, she said, Pastor, uh, we had a song that we would like to have played during the memorial service. And I said, well, what was that? You know, uh, just as I am without one plea, you know, I know that my Redeemer lives. She goes, no, it was by Frank Sinatra. And most pastors would say, well, we could do that as pre-service music, or we could do that after the service, or maybe you could do that at the reception. And I said, well, sure, let's do that. You know, so, you know, I made this decision that, hey, this is part of the memory as well. Let's celebrate that. You know, this was important to them. You know, it was, it was kind of the, uh, the banner for their whole life together. And, and just as I made that decision, uh, as I began to prepare to to lead that service, it was held at Schrader's this, on this occasion. Uh, I didn't realize that uh, the daughter of the man who had died was the chief administrative officer for a major church in town. And some of my pastor friends came in their collars and sat in the second row. Doesn't God, does God mess with you like that? He messes with me all the time. Just when I make a decision, I'm so confident about a decision, you know, something like that happens. Man, that these guys are not going to understand, you know, they're book people. And... Uh, and so I started the service and said, you know, we're here to do a memorial service. And we're, we're going to do it in a wonderful way. And certainly we're going to remember Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. That's the most important gift that she had in life or that he had in life. But, but there were awesome things. He had an awesome marriage. And one of the great songs that, that they loved uh, was a song that we're going to sing uh, or at least we're going to hear played during the service. And it's going to be by Frank Sinatra. And we're going to enjoy that as well. And, and uh, not a thing was said later, by the way. And uh, what a celebration. And, and since then, I, I've got to say that I have learned over the years to love doing funerals. I know that sounds morbid. Does that sound morbid to you? Uh, I, in fact, I prefer a funeral over a wedding any day. And because uh, weddings are all about appearances and pictures, you know, did I say that out loud? Uh, but funerals are all about words and all about thoughts and all about faith. You know, that's where faith really comes to play. I would hope that weddings do too, but uh, in my experience, not so much. And, and, uh, and, and so we've, we've made funerals our specialty, and, and I love to do them. In fact, we'll sit with the family after there's been a death, and we've had several. In fact, I just got notified yesterday of another. And we'll sit with the family as they come in from around the country, and, and we'll do an interview with them. And, and it takes an hour, hour and a half, sometimes two hours or more. And, and I prompt the family, and they begin telling stories, you know, about what they know about their mom or their dad or, or their child or their husband or their wife. And, and uh, pretty soon they're laughing, and they're recalling wonderful things. See, we're not going to focus on how they died and the frailty of their life. We're going to focus on their childhood. We're going to focus on their, their parenting years. We're going to focus on their successes and their struggles. And, and I actually, after I meet with the family and capture all those notes, I actually go to the computer and I do some research. And I find out what year they were born and what kind of world were they born into, what was going on in the world at that time, and who else was born in that year. And, and we have a congregation of two or 300 people out here 
here. Uh, and they're all from different backgrounds, and they all have different relationships, and so they're all very stoic, you know, just paying their respects. But when we begin to share the story of how this person lived and how God blessed them, and we wrap it all in Scripture, I just see the people smile, they begin to laugh, they begin to lean in. And, and suddenly we have a people here who are celebrating a life, the struggles and the successes of life. And they're ready then to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ that we preach later in the, in the service. It's become an awesome thing. In, in fact, uh, I've even said that if I wasn't a pastor, I would like to be a personal biographer. I read a lot of biographies. And I think everybody has a story that's worth being told. And Christians especially have stories about how God has worked with them in life and through life. It's blessings and it's difficulties to bring them to the place that they are. That's why this story captured my imagination and my attention. It's a story about uh, a person named Emily Phillips. Emily Phillips just died uh, on March 26, just a few weeks ago. She was 69 years old. She died after 29 days of being diagnosed with a terminal illness. I mean, that quick, she died. Now, the only reason I know Emily Phillips from Jacksonville, Florida, is that she wrote her own obituary. And uh, it's several pages long. I'm I'm sure that it cost a pretty penny to put that in the newspaper, but it's hilarious. And and in fact, it's become viral and has been downloaded by millions of people already. And uh, uh, it's kind of interesting to see what she wrote. She was a mother. Uh, She was a beauty pageant winner. Uh, She was a grandmother of five. And she was blessed to marry the man of her dreams who was tall, dark, and handsome. I wonder how you would identify your life if you were to write your own obituary. Here's what she said. It pains me to admit it, but apparently I have passed. (laughs) Everyone told me it would happen one day, but that's not simply something I wanted to hear, much less experience. Once again, I didn't get things my way. That's been the story of my life. So I was born, I blinked, and it was over. No buildings named after me, no monuments ever erected in my honor. But I did have the chance to know and love each and every friend, as well as all my family members. How much more blessed can a person be? Incredible statement. She went on in in her uh, multi-page obituary to mention some of the unique blessings. She remembered uh, being the bride in first grade to Tom Thumb when they conducted a wedding for him. She remembered in high school that she was the chief majorette and and she was privileged to lead her high school band down King Street in New Orleans during Mardi Gras, highlight of her life. But there were other things that she dealt with. She apologized to some people. She apologized to her sisters, Mary Ann, for tearing up her paper dolls and for Betsy for dating a guy that she had a crush on in high school just to get at her. And she apologized even to her kids. She had two of them. She apologized to her sweet Bonnie for making her wear no frill jeans when everybody else was wearing frilly jeans. And for redshirting her son Scott when he was only in kindergarten. She said apparently these things were humiliating to them at the time, but both of them overcame to become successful adults. And then she said, I'll leave you with this. Please don't cry for me. Instead, be happy that I was here. Well, okay, maybe you can cry a bit. (laughs) After all, I have passed away. But today I'm happy and I'm sure I'm dancing, probably naked. (laughs) Love you forever. Emily, P.S., don't forget to sign the guest book. 
You know, just just got to love the spirit of this lady. You know, she focused on the positive and the blessing in her life. Is that what you're doing? Are you able to rise above the difficulties? Are you able to play to your strengths? Let's take a look at the scripture and see what pains Jesus went to to help Peter regain his sense of personal importance from John 21, verses 1 to 19. I said at the last service, and because this is being recorded and I want him to hear it, I'm saying it again. It's interesting to me that when Pastor Dion preaches, who um, ultimately makes decisions about our text, he chooses for himself four or five verses at the most. He gives me 19 verses to preach and then complains that I go too long. So, Dion, if you're paying attention, uh, I'm not going to read all 19 verses to you. Just say, thank you. I am going to read a part of it. So let's start with verse 1. Afterward, namely after Easter Sunday, and Jesus appeared to his disciples in the upper room, and Thomas was not there, and Jesus appeared to Thomas again later, and all the disciples were present. He said, you know, touch the nail prints and, and feel the wound in my side, and know that I am truly raised from the dead. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. So after those two appearances, this is now the third appearance, after Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, it happened in this way. He told them to go and wait for him in Galilee, and so they went, probably to a place where they often went. Simon Peter was there, Thomas, the doubter, also known as Didymus, which means the twin. Uh, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee was there. The sons of Zebedee, uh, James and John. And two other unnamed disciples, which they must have not been liked by John. He just said two other guys, you know, we're also there uh, together. Uh, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. You know, he wasn't going to sit around. And they said, well, okay, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples could not make him out. I mean, they'd been fishing all night. They were tired, and maybe the sun was in their eyes. And they couldn't quite make it out, although they did see somebody on the beach. So he called out to them, friends, have you caught any fish? (laughs) Fishermen hate that question. Uh, No, they answered, we haven't. Thanks for mentioning it. He said, well, throw your net out on the right side. See, isn't this interesting? Because when Jesus first came to them, they were also in the Sea of Galilee, remember? And and, uh, they hadn't caught anything and been fishing all night. And he said, go out into the deep water. And they said, come on, Lord, we've been fishing all night. And you don't fish in the deep water. You fish in the shallow water when they come in to feed, when they congregate. And he said, no, just go out in the deep water. And they caught so many that began to sink two boats. And so he says, throw your net out on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Oh, memory starts to kick in. The disciple whom Jesus loved, John, said to Peter, it's got to be the Lord And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he uh, grabbed his outer garment, wrapped it around him so he'd have it with him, for he had stripped down to uh, work, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, only about 100 yards. Just interesting that... uh, Jesus was already on the beach. He already had built a fire. He was already cooking fish. He was already baking bread. No one dared to ask him where he got the fish, where he found the bread. And they didn't ask him hardly any questions at all. It was an awkward moment, the Bible tells us. But then after breakfast, he says, Peter, you and I need to talk. And it continues. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon, as they began to walk down the beach, Simon, son of John, 
Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know I love you. He said, Simon, do what I called you to do a long time ago, three years ago. Feed my lambs. And they walked on, talked about some other things perhaps, and then Jesus said, Simon, I was wondering. Notice he calls him Simon, son of John. doesn't call him Petros, the rock upon which I will build my church. He calls him Simon, whose identity was found in another person, another man, his daddy. Simon, you know, the child of John. Do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Simon said, then do what I ask you to do. Tend my sheep. The third time, after some discussion, after some walking, he said, Simon, let me just ask you one more time. Do you really love me? Now, Peter was troubled because Jesus asked him now a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, I could never lie to you. He said, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, well, then, Simon, why are you so doubting in yourself? Do what I ask you to do. Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you were impetuous. You were compulsive. You were uh, self-initiating. You were fearless. You dressed and you've always done whatever you wanted the way you wanted. But now when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. Someone else will put garments on you. And they'll lead you where you do not want to go. And you will be required to be submissive. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, Peter, follow me. We all have our strengths. But despite our strengths, sometimes we focus on our failures, our faults, our shortcomings. We often wish that we were something that we are not, even though God has never wired us to be that kind of person. In fact, some have done a study of personality types. Uh, the Myers-Briggs uh, is maybe the most famous of, of all the analyticals. Uh, and there are four different dichotomies. There is the introvert versus the extrovert. Uh, Dr. Shopper, who was for a long time in charge of pastoral ministry here, didn't like the term introvert, so he called it introspective. I thought that was so introvertish of him. Uh, because he thought in our culture, introvert is a negative word. I, he probably is going to talk to me at my Bible study on Wednesday about saying that. But uh, introspective versus extrovert. In other words, this is a person who's thoughtful, who, who uh, turns things over in their mind, is slow to uh, maybe act until they've thought things through. This is more of an activist doer. A sensing person is, is a person who relies on their senses, uh, not predictability, but uh, does what they see, what they hear, relies on the facts. An intuitive person is a person who imagines, who projects, doesn't matter what the facts are to them. They think about what could be. A thinking person is a person who is logical and decisive versus a feeling person who is more, you know, relational and emotional in making uh, judgments and decisions. A judging person is an organized person. They're a structured person versus a perceiving person who is flexible and likes change. You know, God doesn't have a favorite type. In, in fact, of these four dichotomies, if you multiply four against four, you'll find that there are 16 different personality types and you could fall into one of them. Somebody had fun with it and did the Myers-Briggs personality types found in the Bible. There's Rebecca and Deborah and Adam and Mary and Laban and Luke. And uh, I happen to fall in line with Esther, although I'm not sure that I would agree with their assessment. They call her an ENTP, uh, an 
extrovert, intuitive, thinking, perceiving person. They called her a clever visionary. I kind of like those words. But I don't think she was that. I think she was fearful in, in her style. Uh, but listen to what the scripture has to say about who was gathered on the beach that day. Simon Peter was there, clearly an extrovert. Thomas, though, uh, not so much intuitive, but a sensing person, only trusting what he could see, what he could feel, what he could test to be true. Uh, you know, called doubting Thomas because he had that kind of attitude. Nathaniel, what an interesting guy that the Lord chose in Nathaniel. Remember early in ministry when Philip came and said to Nathaniel, We have found the Lord Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel said, Check the scripture, Philip. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of Galilee. When Jesus was introduced to him moments later, he said, uh, Nathaniel, a man in whom there is no guile. You know, Nathaniel, a man who tells it like it is. A man who doubts that I could be the Savior because he didn't know that I had been born in Bethlehem. He thought I had been born in Galilee. What's interesting is Nathaniel was from Cana, which is just across the street, by the way, from Nazareth. He was also from Galilee. And he said, nothing good comes from that. Believe me, I was born there. You know, so you get these personality types. And the son of Zebedee. The sons of Zebedee. John describes himself as the one whom Jesus loved. This guy is all relational. He's all emotional. He's all feeling. He's not the thinking, decisive kind of guy. All of these people were gathered there. And we see in this microcosm all different kinds of personalities that Jesus called together. He has no favorites. In fact, I would line myself up with an ENTP. In fact, Pastor Garrett and I uh, almost align ourselves perfectly uh, with the same profile. Uh, although uh, you could be on either extreme or you could be in the middle. Most of us are right in the middle because sometimes we are extroverting and sometimes we are reflective. You know, it's just the nature of what we do that forces us uh, to be uh, working in both sides of that equation. But an ENTP is generally uh, a guy who understands things uh, quickly and, and understands the complexity of a thing. Accordingly, they tend to be flexible. They adapt well to a wide range of tasks. ENTPs are idea people. Uh, Their perceptive abilities cause them to see possibilities everywhere. And they get excited and enthusiastic about their ideas. Make some good preachers, I suppose. And they're able to spread their enthusiasm to others. In this way, they get support, you know, uh, for the vision and the objectives of their organization. That's what we do. But your strengths are your weaknesses. ENTPs have some strengths, but they also have some weaknesses. They're not so interested in developing the, the structure and the plans necessary to carry out their grand ideas. You know, that's why we have Jeff Cook sitting over here, you know, who's my business guy. He says, uh, that budget, Steve, needs to be on my desk by the end of the week. You haven't done anything with that yet. Ah, it's going to be okay, Jeff. Don't worry about the budget. Jeff worries about the budget. You know, it also says that ENTPs, uh, uh, while they care about results, uh, don't often meet their deadlines. You know, my administrative assistant and my wife gets driven crazy by the uh, procrastination, uh, but I'm usually involved with other more important things than, than what they want me to do. And, and when I miss the deadline, they remind me the deadline was two days ago. My staff has gotten so good at this, they set early deadlines that they don't really mean because they know I'm going to be late, and they can use that to beat me up with. You know, so we all have personality types, and how would the world be so different if everybody was of the same type? In, in fact, didn't Paul in the uh, epistles often talk about the church is like a body? There's a hand, there's an eye, there's a leg, there's a foot. You know, there's a nose and an ear. And one part of the body can't say to the other part, I'm more important than you. You know, all parts are needed. 
And in addition to that, you are more than just a type. You aren't just the way you are wired. You are the way you are wired, and that's a good thing. God chose all kinds of wired people. But you're also the result of your environment. You know, we're, we're affected by others in our relationship. Some of the reflective people were quite happy to just sit there and think about what had taken place. Peter said, I'm not sitting here any longer. I'm going fishing. Some of the other people said, well, if Peter's gone fishing, we'll go with you. You know, we are a result of our family of origin. This past week, it was kind of fun to watch on Facebook. Uh, somebody invented this concept of Siblings Week or Siblings Day. And all of you or many of my friends were posting pictures of their family of origin. And it's interesting to look back and see us as children or young adults and think about how we have grown and what our brothers and sisters have become. And the longer uh, I live, the more I realize that my family of origin has left its mark on me. It's not a bad thing. You know, I'm, I, I see elements of my father in my life, and I see elements of me and my children as well. We are, uh, the education that we received or the lack thereof. My brothers and sisters never get tired of reminding me that I was privileged enough to have a patron uh, because my pastor recognized some gifts in me. Uh, he he uh, recruited a patron to pay for me to go to a, a prep school, a Christian prep school that my brothers and sisters did not Uh, qualified to go to, and as a result, my life has been different than theirs. Not better, just different than theirs, but it does make a difference. Uh, Peer groups. Uh, How many of us have seen our children? Uh, Their peer group is this way, their peer group is that way, and what an effect it has on children. In fact, sometimes we'll try to bring them to a different peer group, you know, to balance them out. Uh, We have different people of influence who have come into our life. Rarely do we have Uh, any reason to take credit for that. Just God moved certain people into our lives at certain times. In fact, these three things are the things that I love so much about our Christian school here at St. John. You know, we have an excellent educational product. Uh, The test scores are outstanding. The accreditation review that we got was incredible. Uh, We have incredible peer groups. I don't send them there because they teach religion. I send them there because they study with other Christian kids whose families also have Christian values. And then they have people of influence. They mentioned the two young guys that were playing instruments over here. They didn't mention the guy who was standing behind them, Scott Osborne, our assistant principal, who is their band director. You know, and, and so our kids at our school have other adults who model the faith you know, in front of them. So it's, it's an incredible thing to have your kids exposed to that. And then there are life experiences that we have. Some of them awesome. Some of them hard setbacks, accidents, disease, difficulties that we've had to overcome. And all of them play into our personality types and shape us. Historic circumstance as well. You know, I'm a reader. I love to read and I love to read history. And and, uh, years and years ago, I read Tom Brokaw's book, The Greatest Generation. And it describes my father's generation, you know, the people who went to World War II. And you would have thought that World War II would have had the biggest influence on them. But in all of his interviewing of all those people that, that he tells their story in that book, he says almost to a person, they said that the Great Depression had more of a factor in their life and their attitudes about life than even World War II. I would think they're a bit short-sighted. I think World War II changed our nation. I think they took farmers and small businessmen from very small cultures across our nation. We were mostly an agricultural country at that time. And they put them in these armies that went off by the millions and changed the world. I don't think those guys ever came back the same. They came back realizing that when people get organized, they can accomplish miraculous things. And America was forever changed by their experience. Historic circumstance. You know, people who were the Pearl Harbor generation. We now have the 9-11 generation. 
We have people who are raised with social media, different than how uh, many of us were raised. We have people who live in a digital age. It's got to have its impact. So not only are, are you who you're wired to be, you're more than who you're wired to be. You're also the influence of all these other things that have happened in your life. And it's interesting, before you can play to your strengths, you must make peace with who you are. You have to know yourself. It takes a lifetime to do that. And you have to accept that reality. Quit wishing that you were someone else. I've come to appreciate who I am and my strengths and also my weaknesses. I know my weaknesses and I've, I've come to value those who work with me, who provide uh, me with information, who provide me with structure that I need in order to be most effective. It's important that you also understand but not excuse your faults. You know, I, I, I don't say, well, that's who I am. Just deal with it. You know, I realize that that's a shortcoming in my life. You know, when... Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him in the courtyard the night that he was tried before Caiaphas three times. Peter said, it's not going to happen. He said, oh, it'll happen. And he goes, and when you recover, use your experience to strengthen your brethren. What experiences have you had? You know, some by virtue of mistakes that you've made in your life. Does that forever disqualify you? No, use those experiences to strengthen your brethren. Some of those have not been decisions that you've made. You've just been uh, a result of, uh, of misfortune. Uh, other people's decisions that have affected you. You know, losses that you had nothing to do with. Use those experiences to strengthen your brethren. There are people in here who have suffered from drug addiction. People who have uh, suffered from alcohol addiction. People who have suffered the loss of a child. You know, people who have had tremendous job loss that has sent them reeling in life. You know, you may or may not have had anything to do with that, but use that experience to strengthen your brethren. It hasn't disqualified you. It's trained you and made you capable of doing even greater things for the Lord. And understand but not flaunt your strengths. I clearly have strengths that are God-given. Last Sunday, I was not preaching for Easter Sunday. Uh, Last year, Pastor Garrett was responsible for messaging during the uh, Holy Week immersion experience, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday. This year, I did the messaging experience for Torn, uh, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday. And last year, I preached Easter. This year, Dion preached Easter. Uh, but I still wanted to be present, and so I was involved in a different way in Sunday services. Uh, privileged to be here and be a part in any way of that service. So Jeff and I came up and we did the welcome in at one service. I said, I'm Steve Howard. I'm on staff here. And, and Jeff said, he's Jeff Cook and, and he's on staff here. And, and one of my friends in the congregation, uh, a very successful businessman in the congregation came up to comment about the service, you know, was really blessed by it. He said, but just let me tell you, Pastor Howard, never introduce yourself as just on staff here. You're our senior pastor, for goodness sakes. You know, you're one of our teaching pastors, at least. Never just say you're on staff here. And I said, but I am on staff here. You know, it's, it's okay. By God's grace, I'm on staff here. Privileged to be on staff here. And by the way, Mr. Successful Businessman, I know that you have been blessed to be extremely successful in life. And you are just a sinner saved by grace as well. Don't take much credit for that. You know, I, I know you've worked hard. I know you've taken some risk. I know you've uh, put in extra hours to accomplish that. But God also enabled that to happen for you. So don't deny your strengths. Understand them, but don't flaunt them because even those are given to you by God. Before you can play to your strengths, you must make peace with yourself. I love the way the Lord took Peter for this walk on the beach. 
said, Peter, I know that you're feeling disqualified. I know this is even embarrassing for you to even be in my presence because I said you were going to deny me uh, three times. You did deny me three times, and, and now you have to expect me to say, I told you so. But he doesn't. He takes him for a walk, and he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? He said, Lord, I love you. Yes, I do. Jesus said, well, then do what I ask you to do, please. Feed my lambs. Remember, I called you to do that. Jesus had some other conversation. He said, do you love me? Uh, He said, Lord, you know I love you. He said, well, then do what I ask you to do. Peter, why do you think you shouldn't do that? Take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, after some conversation, after some walking that Luke describes, he says, do you really love me, Peter? Peter was troubled because the Lord had asked him a third time. And I, I think the Lord was just, you know, not allowing him to just slip, you know, through the conversation. He was saying, I'm serious, Peter. I know you love me. In fact, Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, well, then quit denying my forgiveness of you. Quit denying the fact that I accept you. Quit denying and discounting the strengths that you have in your life. Please use them, Peter, to change the world and change your life. Peter, feed my sheep. You must make peace with who you are, both your strengths and your weaknesses. You must also learn to respect the strengths of others. We talked about obituaries in the opening of this message. And let me just say that in all the funeral services that I conduct, almost all of them, I finish now with a passage from Colossians because I know how your families are. Your families are like mine. You know, brothers and sisters have tiffs with each other. And we have people who come, you know, to memorial services for our parents that we don't like. Or they don't like us or whatever. There's just all kinds of human trauma that goes on in in relationships. And so I finish almost every service now with Colossians chapter 3. You are God's chosen people. You have been made holy. You have been declared righteous. You are dearly loved by God. If all of that is true, then can't you be a bit compassionate towards others? Can't you show some kindness? Can't you demonstrate some humility, gentleness, and patience with each other? Can't you bear with each other and forgive one another? If you have a grievance, and I really feel this way, especially when the last parent dies, I wonder, are these kids going to still get together? Or was mom and dad, were, were they the hub of the axle, you know, that caused the family to spin? You know, without that hub, is the family going to just spin out or are they going to stay together? Can you forgive each other? If you have a grievance, and I know you have grievance, you might even have a good reason for your grievance. Can you just rise above and forgive as the Lord has forgiven you? You know, as Christian people, uh, we need to rise above. We need to recognize differences in others. And in the recognition, we need to honor those differences. We need to celebrate those differences. And we need to encourage those differences. We're going to get to them in a minute. There they are. You know, to honor and, and, and not just acknowledge that people are different, but to say, I'm glad they're different. I'm glad you're not the same as me. More can be accomplished. You know, I want to celebrate your differences. I didn't do everything right as a parent, I'll guarantee you. Uh, my kids could write books about what I did wrong. But one thing we did was we said Jacob is different than Joshua, and Joshua is different than Jacob. And we, we helped them to praise each other for their strengths. And there's power in doing that. And encourage them to continue in the way that God has made them. To what end? You know, why even know your strengths? Why praise your strengths? So that you could be successful in life? This is a church. If you really want to be successful in life, I'm not going to tell you how to make a million. I'm going to tell you about how to make a significant life. 
how to be an impact player in things that really matter. Life that is truly life is what Paul told Timothy. Uh, Use your strengths for their intended purpose. Nowhere do you find it better stated than David at the end of his life when he wrote in Psalm 17 these words. Lord, rise and oppose those who have a different way of life. Wicked's a strong term. I don't think he means wicked. He just means those who don't follow your ways. You know, frustrate them, Lord. Don't, don't let the secular influence impact my life. Save me from those attitudes. Uh, those who are only concerned about the here and now. These men that you have filled with treasure so that their children and their grandchildren are rich and prosperous. You know, that's, that's the definition of a life by the world standards. You know, I succeeded and I left a pretty good estate to my kids. He says, spare me that. But as for me, here's the two things that David says make a good life. I'm content, uh, not in wealth, but in seeing you and knowing that, hey, we're tight. Your values are my values in life. I'm not perfect about it, but you help me. I realign, I repent, I restore, I move on. You know, that you and I are good, Lord, while I live. And then when I awake in heaven, I know that day will be awesome. I will be fully satisfied when I see you face to face. The ultimate payoff in life to be uh, on the same page as the Lord in all my dealings. And ultimately in the end to see him face to face. And realize the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed. Now I began with uh, uh, Emily Phillips' obituary. And and it's an awesome obituary. I encourage you to look at it. It's, It's fun to read. And she praised some wonderful things. She focused on positive things. There was no mention of her faith in that, which was somewhat disappointing to me. It doesn't mean that she wasn't a person of faith. It doesn't mean that she didn't have an awesome Christian service. She might have. That may have not been the thing she focused on in her obituary. Uh, But D.L. Moody had a different way of looking at the end of his life. Uh, He was a, a great reformer of America after the Civil War, when almost every family was touched by tragedy and loss and death. And many soldiers came back from the war injured and maimed. Uh, He conducted revivals. And hundreds of thousands of people across our nation came to faith because of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody Institute, Moody Magazine. And he was the establisher of the YMCA's across our country. He said, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Norfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it, he went on to say. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is all, out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto my Lord's glorious body. I was born in the flesh in 1837, significant for me. I was born more significantly in the spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh will die, yes, but that which is born of the Spirit will live forever. And therein is my greatest value. Amen. Please rise and let me pray for you. Lord, we're a mixed bag at best in here. You know, we're, we're wired differently, and that's awesome to see. Help us to respect our differences. But Lord, first and above all, help me to understand how you see me. How you reminded Peter that he had a job to do. And the the job wasn't just to be successful in life. The job was to use his flaws, his failures, his life experience, and the way he was wired to do great things for you. 
to your glory, to the benefit of others, and to his own personal satisfaction. Grant this unto us all. We pray in Christ. Amen. Now, the tendency is to focus on our weaknesses. And God helped Peter to realize that's not where you need to look. Because in the Lord, you are forgiven. And in the Lord, you are made worthy to serve. This next song is all about that. As you think about Peter and the Lord's interaction with him, uh, think about what that means to you as you sing these words.